electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money, where phones ring on set. Here's what's on tap tonight. <laughs> a burst of energy, crude doing something it hasn't done all year long. Is this just the start of a long year, year-end rally? And if so, how much higher can this trade go? Plus, the countdown to midnight. The CEOs of GM and Ford speaking out as a threat of UAW strikes draws closer. What they have to say about the looming work stoppages and what it could mean for the auto industry. And later, we'll go inside ARM's long-awaited return to the public market today here at the NASDAQ. Disney's bump on reports ABC could be sold, and a new ETF hitting the market trying to capitalize on the zero-day options boom. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. But we start off with the pop in oil prices. WTI crude topping 90 bucks a barrel for the first time since last November. Brent crude surging, too, closing in on $94. Big oil stocks coming along for the ride, Marathon, Hess, ConocoPhillips, Exxon, and more, all beating the broader markets today. Crude's move also highlighted in the latest producer price print, the PPI's energy index jumping 10.5% in August, its biggest monthly gain since at least 2010. That jump being felt by a wave of companies saying fuel cost pressures are hitting their near-term profits. Delta today, American yesterday, United, Southwest, Alaska Airlines last week. So is this a new crude reality for companies, and how much higher could oil go from here? Guy, what do you say? Well, I mean, if you've been watching the show, we've thought this is going to happen for quite some time. And at a certain point becomes, you know, listen, the SPRs at levels, they had an opportunity probably to replenish it in. Here we are at 90 bucks. There's going to be a Homeland Security. You're going to see all different networks talking about this. Now everybody's seeming on a gasoline thing. I'll say this. I don't think it matters at this point if crude goes higher or not. The energy stocks, to me, are still in play. And Valero, I think, made an all-time high today. OIH at a four-year high. Marathon Petroleum, we're going to have Paul Sankey on. He talked about the stock when it had a $60 handle. That's making an all-time high. So the commodity seems to be, you know, that cat's out of the bag. I don't know if you can put it back in. But regardless of price action now, the energy stocks are still attractive at these levels. I mean, they're the worst performing sector this year. So maybe there's some of that going on. People looking for performance going into year end. Yeah, but I, I look at a two-year outperformance of the S&P. So this wasn't just that, that flash in the pan. I get where we were at the end of 2010, so the underperformance. But um, I, I agree with Guy. I think there's a lot more of this to go. I say this all the time. For the last year and a half, uh, the energy companies have proven that for the previous couple years before that, they, they're run differently. They're run for equity shareholders. They're not run to grow at all costs. They're not run to, you know, you know, pay back debt. And in fact, they're paying back a lot of debt. So what I mean is, historically, that's all they really cared about. Um, I, I look at the oil field services, OFS, but I look at Schlumberger and, and I look at the earnings power uh, that I think is, is you know, coming to the company now. I mean, I look at where they were in 2015, 2016 when the stock was a $95 stock. I, I think what you're starting to hear is, first of all, that the drillers have pricing power. Uh, there is demand. There is a lack of supply right now. Some of the dynamics are, are certainly OPEC related. Some of them are structural. Some is a lack of investment uh, in new production for the last decade. So um, I think this is a trade. I think it's underweight in terms of the S&P. Uh, 
uh, I think if you think of uh, the move in oil and these energy stocks with the, the move we've had in the dollar over the last six weeks, it's extraordinary. Every 1% higher move in the dollar usually means a 3% move lower in oil prices, and oil prices are doing what they're doing with the dollar. Yeah, I agree with everything Tim and Guy said. I think the idea of this is a different industry now, and the idea in the past had been when they make so much money when oil's this high, well, what have they got to do? Expand, buy everything they can, and that's just not rewarded right now. It's not happening right now. Um, companies feel like they won't be rewarded, and so they've just turned into gushers of money. Right. So and those management teams were fired already, yeah. by the way. They're gone. I mean, those yeah. those those CEOs were overseeing, you know, pretty much the, the bankruptcies of the last round. So it's a different era. And so now, even though they've moved a lot, to me, they're still very attractive. They don't they're not less attractive, even though they've moved. Yeah, it's interesting, though, um, the, the relationship to the dollar. And, and, and again, so you have rising crude, rising dollar, and, and there's going to be some knock on effects from that if that continues to go that way. I, I don't know. I, I'd be surprised to see, you know, crude go too much higher. I just think, you know, you talk about, you know, these supply demand dynamics, and it really is a matter of supply, I think, that's caused this 35 percent rally over the last, call it eight, nine weeks or so. And if you look at some of the industries, Mel, you just mentioned all of those airlines that are warning because these input costs, you know, while crude was getting hit, you know, earlier in the spring, spring into the summer, you saw the airline stocks rally 25%. Now they've given it all back. And I just wonder, as we've been spending a lot of time talking about consumer, we look at where gas at the pump is right now, and we're talking about savings rates, we're talking about you know inflation it just in general ticking back up at a time where wage growth is moderating. I wonder you know, how much some of these companies that were able to pass on a lot of these inflationary inputs, how long they're able to do it, even if you do have crude, let's say it just stays around here yes. for a couple months, that sort of thing. So right. to me, that might be a story for Q4 this year. And we've heard it time and time again that the Saudis, they've got bills to pay. They've got projects mm-hmm. that they have to fund. And so their interest is to keep the price of oil high. So if we are where we are for a long time, Guy, have companies already adjusted to that? We've already heard from companies as well that consumers are pushing back on price increases. So the, the hope of, of passing a higher cost on at this point is probably out the window. Right, so it's back at energy stocks. The answer to your question is no, they haven't. I don't think they've. I don't think they've come to the realization that we're probably in this new. Well, I don't want to say new paradigm, but we're in this environment for the foreseeable future in terms of higher energy costs. And for a while, yeah, companies have been able to pass those costs to their customers. I don't think they can do it anymore. And what does that mean? If I'm right, it means margins contract. What happens when margins contract? You should pay less for in terms of valuation, less for a dollar's worth of earnings than the market's paying right now. So if you see margin contraction, theoretically, it should mean stocks go lower. Yeah. And as an input to other things, if energy prices are sure. high, chemical, chemicals, chemicals, yeah, pe- I mean, miners, that's one of their biggest input costs. It, it is. I, I think the, the petrochems trade also is one that's interesting. I think for the petrochemical companies and for refined product, it's it's actually we're getting into a sweet spot for them. So I actually think and, and I would get back just to Slumbergy. I bring it up because I'm looking at a report by Cowan. Um, they basically have indicated that they're going to add five billion in revenue and one and a half billion in EBITDA to 22 and that they think they could do the same for 24. So again, if you're talking about raising uh, you know, revenue by 10 million over a couple of years, this is where I think the companies are going to continue to both re-rate. And, and I think the balance sheets get better and better. Yeah, dollar higher. And China weaker. Higher. I mean, what about like, no, you know, this is the other thing. Like there's no China out there. There's no kind of like global right. resource trade. A lot of this is happening with sentiment on China and China's economy and a property bubble. Uh, you know, it's 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 very, very low. That and what if there is stimulus? Exactly. What happens to oil at that point. But I mean, to, the, to Dan's point in terms of higher dollar and higher oil, that doesn't sound like a great recipe for multinational companies. 
Uh, well, it's not terrible necessarily. You see, their their earnings are going to be hit with a higher dollar. Yes, but um, to the idea that it's because the economy is doing well, right? And there is demand. And do you think it's because of that, or do you think it's just central bank differentials? Uh, I think it's maybe some of both. Uh huh. Right. I, I don't know. I, I feel like the economy is humming along. And so I have to go with both. All right. Our next guest is going long on energy as it climbs higher. Paul Sankey of Sankey Research joins us here on set. Paul, always great to see you. Oil must be 90 and above, right? I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> That's when we have you. Um, do we stay here? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, a lot of it, so much of this depends on governments. And what's driven us up has obviously been the Saudis. As you know, last year, the U.S. government was releasing a million barrels a day from the SPR. That's a huge amount of oil at the margin. A million barrels a day. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've got the same effect now with Saudi having cut a million barrels a day. And what, 10 days ago now, a week ago, they said they're going to maintain those cuts through the end of the year. So that million is going to be offline right through the end of the year. So. It looks like a very tight balance uh, as we head for Christmas, and obviously you're going to be nervous about winter. We don't know what's going to happen in winter, but you better be ready for it in case it's cold. So it looks like it'll be a pretty powerful uh, situation now into the year round. Now, having said that, Saudi had said last year they wanted $95 oil, not publicly, but that was the number that they said they needed for their growth plans. They need 85 Brent for their budget. The question is, can Biden, the Biden administration? engender relations that allow the Saudis to say, okay, we'll back off this cut now, we're at 95. Or are they maybe going to do more SPR, or what are they going to do? We don't know. You've heard us waxing poetic in terms of valuations. These stocks, for example, I mentioned Marathon MPC, Marathon Petroleum, which you came and talked about in the fall of 21, it was a $60 stock, is basically tripled-ish. I think valuations are still compelling. Am I right or am I wrong? Well, you hesitate to say new paradigm. You know, this time it's different. We don't like to say it. But as you've all referenced, these, these stocks just buy back stock. You know, so they get the excess cash flow. If they have a great quarter, effectively the stock's worth 5% more simply because you know these managements now have, have got a new paradigm. And the new paradigm is we'll just pay it back to shareholders. And so, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a really positive refining environment. Although, again, it's somewhat caused by the Saudis cutting heavier sour barrels from the market combined with the distillate problem that we have globally. How, if at all, does the election cycle play out in, in your oil forecast? I mean, you know, higher oil, the Biden administration is going to try and, and knock that down either by calling up Saudi Arabia or going there and saying, you know what, can you please back off, which they may or may not do. I mean, they haven't done that. I think it's a big recently. deal, you know, because it's not an election year here, right? So do they, do they not do anything now and say, OK, let's just keep this in reserve? You know, let's keep an SPR, you know, download uh, because we've taken out half the SPR, right. you know, do we really? And it became public that it was just being sold to China, which didn't go over great. So, you know, at this point, it's very tough for them going into winter, rising prices, causing rising inflation, Fed having to keep, you know, things tight. And we're not in an election year makes it really tough. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's been so tough about this year. You know, we got Russia wrong. Didn't happen in the way that we did. Now, we're looking at the G7 saying we're not going to bother about the price cap anymore in Russian oil. So there's things they're doing at the margin. Iran has become the biggest supplier of oil to China. That's a problem for the Saudis. And of course, you've got a little bit of marginal stuff coming out of Venezuela. That's why it's hard to call the oil price, because it's all government stuff. You know? right. So let's call the equity prices a little bit. And, and you talk to institutions. That's what you've done your whole career. One, it feels like the institutional investor in the oil market is different. There are obviously dedicated resource players, but there was a lot of crossover stuff going on when the energy 
sector was 16% of the S&P back in 2008. Where do you see this going? And, and where do you see broader institutional interest in a resource sector where a lot of these folks were burned? And as you said, and as we've said, these companies are run differently. They're buying back stock. They can pay down debt at $60 oil. They're not the same companies. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We had the big bar cap conference here, which is the energy kind of start to the year after Labor Day. And the feedback was, it's incredible to think that Brent is above 90 and everyone's so negative. Yeah. That's the oil specialists. And I think the oil specialists are reluctant to capitalize Saudi cuts, you know, because we don't, if we get weak here, Saudi's got a double problem, right? Because then they're like, now we're at 9 million barrels a day. We've got 2 million barrels a day of spare capacity. Oil price is going down. Now, how do we get our revenues? And so there could be a major traffic accident in 24. And that's the way oil specialists are looking at it. I think generalists look at it and go, oil's causing inflation, short the NASDAQ, go long oil stocks. And by the way, these things pay you. They're not going to blow the money up. I think we got a preview to his pair trade. Well, let's get to the pair trade with the caveat that the last time you gave us a pair trade was in May. And it was sort of a mixed performance because you said long EQT, which is up 22% since then. Yeah. Um, and short a basket of Permian oil producers where if you actually combined it, it looks like it's, it didn't really work out. So anyway, Melissa, I thought you gonna, caveat, <laughs> what's your pairs trade? I thought you were going to ask me about my long oxy short NVIDIA trade, which well, was really that bad. That was horrible. <laughs> we already called you out the last time. So. <laughs> okay, right. And by the way, it's not fair that we're making you do these pair trades. I mean, but I think he enjoys it. I yeah, smiling. He, he's, he comes back. And he, and he's well, you know, Sanky, Sanky Research is independent, right? If I was at a broker-dealer, a lot of right. this stuff I couldn't talk about different uh, stocks that are not in my sector, for example. So... Uh, today we were talking, if you want oil price just out and out juice and to a lot of the themes, partly the Slumberjay theme, you buy Transocean Rig, which has been on a tear, but it's just extremely levered. Um, you know, so that, that would be one on the long side. And then in, in the paper book that I trade, we're long rig and we're, we're short UAL. So, you know, an obvious, there's a lot of obvious things that do badly with high oil prices. And that, that's, by the way, that's a highly, highly levered trade that you've got right there. Sounds so, like it. Yeah. All right. Paul, thank you. Always it's good to see you. See, he's smiling. He's going to come back. Uh, he should be smiling. I mean, I mean, his, his, his short Apple long yes, Exxon trade is one of the greatest of all time. That's that that's the pair trade of the ages. Well, I mean, that was his first one, though. That we, was the he got him out of his, out of his, you know, his sector no, focus. We had long, we had long MPC back. short Rivian. I mean, that was <laughs> yeah. epic. Okay. That's nice. Right. That's true. But I knew eventually it would blow up, and it of did. Of course. <laughs> it's such a good sport, Paul. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. It's a pleasure. Levered plays, yep. rig. I mean, they have a $9 billion backlog. You think you talk about levered plays, rig is one of them. So, I mean, this stock has bounced, but you look at it where it's been, not that it matters historically, but this is one of those things you catch a couple things right. It goes from basically $8.5 to $11 percentage terms. That's a big move. And, you know, I'm with him. And he mentioned China real quick. Yes, they've been buying oil. He said, what are they doing buying? Their economy's been slowing down. They've been stockpiling. Yeah. Why are the Chinese stockpiling oil and other commodities? Ask yourself that question. I won't answer it. I'll just throw it out there to the fast money audience. Think about that for a second. They're stockpiling things. They One always has have. To, well, ah, they always you know, have. This I in mean, a major on. way. I mean, the oil thing is no joke we in terms of what they're doing. We stockpile by the yeah. way. Forget we about us. SCR. Yeah, not anymore we don't. Well, yeah. So where are you going with this? I'm not going anywhere. I'm throwing it out. He wants to talk war. I mean, that's what you're talking about. What's it good for? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. Say it again. Um, you know, it's interesting. This XLE, 40% is the, you know, it's, it's Exxon and it's Chevron. Um, and, you know, this thing at, you know, it's, it's back up here above 90 bucks. And I go back and I look at, you know, where it was, you know, at the heights before it crashed 10 years ago. It was uh, mid-90s or so. And then you go, I, I just don't, I don't know how this thing breaks out. Like, what you guys tell me, what, what is the thing that gets Exxon and Chevron to drag the XLE, and we talk about the XLE a lot, to break out 
I mean, look at that chart here and, and everything that we've just talked about. I, I don't know. It's just it's a, it's a conundrum. For well, me. I, I think. Go ahead, Karen. Well, I was going to say it could be if we find ourselves in a market where uh, rates are higher and people are looking for low P.E. kind of stuff. This is exactly where they would go. Low P.E. kind of stuff, dividend. high dividend um, and not out over their skis at all. Right. And in a higher PPI environment, like, like what I love to see as a resource investor is a high PPI out of China. And, and so th- this is what we're getting through. And it may not be CPI and it may be, again, uh, not part of core. But um, I, I continue to think that we have these dynamics. And, and part of this is because I just think there's been a lack of investment in, in, in the underlying. And, and I just think that. Uh, it gets back to the valuations of the companies, and, and they are always cheap, by the way, but I, I think they will look attractive. Meantime, an earnings alert on Lennar. Shares are volatile after beating expectations on the top and the bottom lines. A home builder also reporting strong year-on-year increases in deliveries and new orders in Q3. Let's get the numbers with Diana Olek. Diana. Well, Melissa, higher interest rates apparently didn't hurt very much. Lennar, as you said, beat again on the top and bottom lines, even though rates went from the 6% range on the 30-year fixed in Q2 to the 7% range in Q3. In the release, Lennar's executive chairman, Stuart Miller, noted the jump in interest rates during the quarter, but said short housing supply absorbed by strong primary and pent-up demand continued to define a strong sales environment. And he added that home builders also continued to use incentives, including buy-downs, to offset rising interest rates and tighter capital, which, of course, limit affordability. Now, Lennar's average sales price was lower in Q3 at 448000 compared with almost 500000 the year before. It also raised Q4 guidance on deliveries. And we did just get the read on mortgage demand for newly built homes in August. It was up 20% year over year. So while the existing market is still weak due to low supply, builders are picking up the slack. Melissa? Karen's got a question to answer. Yeah, so despite that average sales price being lower, their, their margins were actually better, so their costs were lower. Do they see that continuing? Yeah, I mean, they didn't say about whether that's continuing, but when you talk about that average sales price, some of that actually skews more toward who's buying what. So it's not necessarily that median of who's, you know, on either side, but probably more that lower... Um, priced homes are selling more than higher priced homes, and that's just the demand out there. You're seeing that in the existing market as well because you have these higher interest rates. People can afford less. They're just moving toward that lower priced home. It's not necessarily that the home itself is dropping. All right. Diana, thanks. Diana Olick. You would think at some point this mortgage rates have got to catch up to this trade. And, and they have been over the last couple of weeks in terms of the stock. So look at Lennar, if we can pull up a chart. The prior high back in December of 2021 was $117-ish. It's not coincidental. Here we are at 117. So we broke out. We're testing that prior all-time high. This should be support. I mean, you look at the quarter. The $3.87 was even higher than the highest whisper number on the street. So it's a very good quarter. But to your point, or rates going to start to catch up to these stocks? The last couple of weeks says, yes, this is huge support right here in Lenar. I think the best days of 23 for the housing stocks are behind them. And, and, and it doesn't really matter to me. I get that the builders are seeing demand and they, they are going to behave differently than the housing market. If, if you've ground velocity in the housing market to, to, to almost zero because people can't move, won't move, won't pay a new mortgage price, um, I get that the home builders are making up that. And it, it is a little bit of an apples and oranges. But the, the, the peripheral pricing across housing markets, I think, are going lower. All we do is talk about the consumer being strapped, too. Um, I I just, you know, I think it's been a great trade off of an expectation that rates were going to be higher. So housing stocks in the face of when rates went lower early summer rallied to to really all time highs. Um, I think you're chasing the trade now. 
Coming up, more after hours action shares of Adobe on the move after reporting results and numbers from the quarter ahead, plus zeroing in on zero day options, a brand new ETF launching today, looking to capitalize on one of this year's biggest trading trends. What you need to know before diving in, don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Adobe. Shares are volatile after the company turned in top and bottom line beats for the Q3. Uh, the software maker CEO also touting Adobe's new era of AI-enhanced products. Let's get to Kate Rooney, who's been listening in on this conference call. Kate. Hey, Melissa. So AI has been a big theme of the earnings call so far. The software maker is saying ahead of earnings that its generative AI tool called Firefly is now widely available. Analysts do expect that to boost revenue growth this year as some of those tools are integrated into Adobe's products. The software maker saw record revenue, $4.9 billion. That was up 10%. And as far as the outlook says that it's balancing macro uncertainty with some of the year-end seasonal strength. Adobe's CEO telling John Fort last hour that enterprise was strong and digital continues to be one of the key areas where IT investment continues. Also said that he expects consumer and small business resilience to continue. Document cloud revenue was a bright spot that was up 13%. Creative revenue and digital media revenue both up 11% year-over-year. Executives also talking about Adobe and the confidence they've got in the merits of its $20 billion acquisition of Figma as it faces a probe from European regulators. Back to you. All right, Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney, Adobe. Great company, 30 times forward numbers, 12 times revenue, stock that's gone from 335 in the spring to, I think it traded up to 575 or so. It's been a huge run. It's a great company. It's a great quarter. Is it too expensive in this environment? Has the stock run too much? The answer to those questions are probably yes. Well, I mean, the answer is the stock's rallied 65% since people have gotten excited about Firefly, right? They've announced the pricing. It's out there. It's available. They just reported 10% revenue growth year over year. Obviously, there's, you know, we're going to have to see how this shakes out over the next few quarters. But, you know, trading at 13 times sales for a $250 billion market cap company where we have to see, you know, essentially how this all shakes out, I, I just don't... I'm surprised the stock's not down. I, I would suspect this stock is probably 500 before 600. It's trading at like 550 right now. Well, I don't have a position in it. I have the IGV short, so I have the other side of position in it. Everything Dan and Guy said is, I think, you know, not just relevant to this stock, but to so many stocks in the IGV. So that's why I'm shorted. And I think, yeah, great. They, great quarter. Great. I mean, there's a lot to like, except for the valuation. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A zero or a hero? 
a new ETF looking to squeeze gains from one of this year's biggest investment trends. But don't worry, Professor Ko is here to dig into the details. What do you need to know about the zero-day options ETF before getting in? Plus, a farewell to ARM? More like a big hello. A big day for the chip design company, surging in its NASDAQ debut. What the listing means for the IPO market and the outlook for tech. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money, a brand new ETF for zero days to expiration options hitting the market today. The Defiance NASDAQ 100 Enhanced Options Income ETF, aiming to grant investors access to what has become a very popular strategy in recent times. Mike Co joins us with a closer look at this fund. Mike. Yeah, so the QQQY ETF basically tries to take advantage of the ability to sell near-dated options. Specifically, they are looking at selling short-dated options on the NASDAQ 100 index options. And what this strategy is going to be doing is selling options that expire anywhere from one day to as far as a week out and collect about 25 basis points worth of premium every day by selling puts. Now, if you're selling puts, obviously you're hoping that the market goes up, but this is a strategy that's relatively path dependent because you are selling volatility. So the best thing for this strategy is if the market just basically treks sideways or moves mildly higher, because if it moves sharply lower, you're gonna have some losses that you're going to need to make up. And of course, it's taking advantage of the fact that there's been a big uptick in short-dated options trading as a result of these zero DTE options. Catch, Mike. What's that? What's the catch, Mike? <laughs> uh, well, you know, the catch, I mean, the catch, as always, if you are selling put options, you're selling a form of insurance on the market. So if volatility spikes, uh, you're going to have some, some risk there. There's something else, too, which I think is kind of important to think about, which is when you sell very short-dated options, you're subject to what we call path dependency, which is how the market behaves from one day to the next. If I sell an option that expires in one month and the market ends up at or above that strike, I'm going to make my money. However, if I start selling at-the-money options every day, I can actually dig myself a hole that I need to then dig my way back out of. So even if the market ends up higher, if it took a really bumpy ride to get there, this might not work out. What's your take, Dan, on a product like this? Um, it sounds like an accident waiting to happen. I mean, like, yeah. so you introduce these in a very low vol period. We have a VIX that's, you know, just below 13 here. Mike's talking about taking a, you know, a quarter of a point by selling at the money puts. If there's some sort of event, right, and there's a number of these sorts of funds that are doing these sorts of things, and it's not just ETFs, right? There's a lot of people employing these sorts of strategies. And, you know, we haven't really been able to put our finger on what these zero days to expiration, what they've meant. I think a lot of people smarter than us, probably Mike Coe is definitely smarter than me, um, you know, they said, 
has been vol dampening. But if there's ever a reason for volatility to come back into the market, you know, I, I don't know how these things are going to well, perform. Well, it, it, the, the expression is picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just it's not it's I mean, the risk reward on it, I don't think makes a lot of sense. I get that short dated options. So not just single day and, and these OTs, but five days or less or half the half the option volume um, of the markets these days. And, and that makes sense to me, um, especially given, you know, event risk and people that are trading and, and really uh, a lot of traders don't want to go home with any exposure every night and they flatten it out. So that makes sense. But uh, again, collecting premium and, and when you have a chance to really have uh, downsized losses, not trades I want to be part of. You're not getting paid enough to take that, in my opinion. You're not, the market is not paying you enough to take type of risk that you're putting on that you probably don't even realize that you have. All right. Thank you, Mike, Professor Co. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, forget leg day. Today was all about the arm. Okay. Uh, I guess it refers to the gym. A strong NASDAQ debut for chip oh, yeah. company Arm. Shares popping nearly 20%. So what does the jump mean for all the other IPOs in the pipeline? Venture capitalist Rick Heitzman will give us his take on today's offering and what it could mean for the tech landscape. And a media deal in the works, what Disney may be doing, looking to do, with one of its signature properties and what it could mean for the stock. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money after this. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks rallying even as the uh, latest inflation reading came in hotter than expected. The Dow jumping more than 300 points. It's best day in more than a month. And the S&P and Nasdaq both climbing eight tenths of a percent, their fourth positive session in five. Shares of AT&T rising after the company updated guidance on free cash flow, saying they expect it to be in the range of four and a half to five billion dollars. That stock ending three percent higher on the day. Shares of Arm Holdings jumping 25% in their Nasdaq debut. The chip design company, which is controlled by SoftBank, priced at $51 a share yesterday. Our next guest believes Arm could help jumpstart the appetite for IPOs. Rick Heitzman is known for early investments in Pinterest, Airbnb, Shopify, and DraftKings. Rick is founder and partner at First Mark Capital. Rick, always great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's well, fantastic. New set. Old home week. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, in terms of today's debut, what do, you, what do you make of it? And we had a guest yesterday saying that he thinks it's going to be like Uber, where the high will have been hit basically at the IPO, and then it'll sort of just languish for a long time. Uh, I, I would disagree with that. Okay. I think what you're seeing is that there's real fundamental demand for IPOs, and people are looking for the new toy. There's not been an IPO, and this isn't even a real IPO. This is a relisting of a company SoftBank took public, similar to Kenvu, which was the uh, J&J spinoff. So, you know, you're going to, but this is what you're saying is there's fundamental demand for that. There's people who want to buy IPOs. And then you're going to see next week with Instacart um, and Kenshu that, you know, that you're going to be able to have buy real traditional fast growing IPOs as those guys come out. And there's a lot of there's a lot of appetite for that. And they're structuring the deals the right way. So these are companies that have been around for a while and their valuations have, in fact, been marked down. From their peaks dramatically. So that sort of bodes well for them in their debut and in terms of pricing. Um, And I'm wondering if you think that that's sort of what needed to happen. They, they had to. to come. They had to price for the pop. I mean, if, if, if Arm would have traded down today, the market would have felt a lot differently. So they price it the right way so they get a pop. And they also have a very small and limited float. So therefore, they're constricting demand and pricing it the right way. And it's the reason that they're going to price, you know, insta- 
uh, Instacart down 70% from the last private round. They're pricing it to, to get into a good new normal for an, for an upswing. So it's interesting, Rick, you know, back in 2021 when Instacart, you know, again, was all the rage, all these gig economy, delivery economy, you know, this was it. And now, like you said, it's going to be down 70 percent. You know, when you think about this, you're a real early stage investor. But some of the investors, some of the VCs who bought at that 39 billion valuation, I mean, it's going to hurt. Right. And then the other thing, I'm just curious if you can give us a sense. Who is the incremental buyer of an Instacart here? Because so many different you know, sorts of companies, hedge funds that normal people would be buyers on IPOs, they've been participating in the second secondary market. They were buying, you know what I mean, in some of yeah. these growth rounds. Is that is that a different dynamic than in past IPO cycles? Well, they, they, they have. They've, they've bought and some of them actually have already sold and some of them haven't participated in this market for the last two years because they didn't want to participate at 38 billion. And now at 9 billion, it's interesting. And Instacart's doing the same thing that Amazon did that some of the other folks are doing of, hey, we're getting in the advertising business. So they're selling very low margin products in order to advertise against them. And it's been a good model for supermarkets, it's been a good model for Amazon. I think it's gonna be a pretty decent model for Instacart going forward. Congratulations to the NASDAQ, they did a great job, without question. Wonderful, all right, let's talk about Arm real quick. They did 2.7 billion in revenue last year, about the same this year. I think today's close means $65 billion yep. market cap-ish. Does that math make any sense? The, the math does not necessarily make sense, but it's a very, you think about the consistency of that business. I mean, that's so tied to the ecosystem of the cell phone infrastructure that that's going to be around forever. And, you know, what, whatever growth rate you put on that, I don't know enough about the company to talk about that. But you, you can say, hey, this is an incredibly important infrastructure company going forward, and therefore it should be priced at a premium for that reason. In terms of market conditions that are going to be good for IPOs, for the new round coming out, I'm curious because, you know, big cap tech, you could make the case that they are defensive. Yes. And so that's not necessarily the measure of a good market or, or good market conditions for these IPOs. They're very different animals, right? I mean, it's very true. That's why people, Instacart, people so. were very concerned that most of the rally has been around big cap tech. And they, where people had historically seen a market open is the last section of IPOs have rallied, right? All the IPOs from 21, if you would see them rallying just to show fundamental demand for growth tech. Right. And we have not seen that. So people are wondering how much appetite is there from the big the traditional IPO buyers. And we're going to find out next week. All right. It's a big test. Rick, thank you. Good to thank see you. Rick Heitzman. Where are you on these? Uh, you know, well, first of all, I mean, for, for Arm, it's interesting because for SoftBank, you've got a big victory in terms of they bought it for 32, but then the Vision Fund, you know, is in at a higher, higher you know, 65 billion watermark. So it's just, you know, it's a fascinating time. Also, some of the most influential investors in the world um, are folks that we kind of want to know what they're thinking, what they're doing, because, it, you know, a lot of times it, it feels like the, the IPO market, especially in tech uh, and leading edge tech, is, is a game of folks that are all sitting at the the same table deciding when they're going it, to. It seems very um, orchestrated. Obviously, these are early stage folks. These are you know, some of the smartest guys in the room, but they're also some of the guys that really told the market, this is what you're going to do. And I don't think they have that same leverage right now. I agree with Guy. I mean, when I looked at the financials, I thought, oh, that's not so crazy for the quarter. That was for the year. And so, I mean, the multiple here is insane, right? I, and so, uh, you know, the small float part of it has to be instrumental there. So I don't know. I'm staying away from this one. Coming up, automaker CEOs sound off ahead of the UAW strike deadline. We'll bring you who said what. That's next. Plus, Netflix shares looking like the walking dead this week. Will the money heist in the stock end? We'll bring you those details and that trade next on Fast Money.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on the UAW's looming strike. Some auto CEOs speaking ahead of the deadline. Phil Bo's got the details. Phil. Melissa, there is a level of frustration with auto executives that I have not heard in more than 24 years of covering the big three and covering a number of these types of negotiations. Here is the latest regarding the UAW contract, which, by the way, expires at 11.59 p.m. tonight. GM and Ford have both made new offers. Those offers call for 20% raises over the life of the contract, which is four and a half years. The UAW will be announcing its strike plans at 10 p.m. tonight. And we've been told by a source familiar with those plans that it will be eight transmission and engine plants in the upper Midwest that will be targeted. Here are those plants in question. We're talking about the big boys uh, when it comes to transmission plants. The Kokomo facility for Stellantis in Indiana, the Cleveland facility for transmissions uh, in uh, and Toledo in Ohio, the Livonia transmission facility for Ford. Uh, these are all the plants. If you don't have transmissions, you can't do final assembly. By the way, the UAW says we're not commenting on this list. There is no list. And the UAW says some of these plants may or may not be on the list. With that said, here's the comments uh, that we heard earlier today from Ford President, or, or excuse me, Ford CEO Jim Farley and GM's President Mark Royce. It hurts everybody. It hurts our employees. It hurts the communities where these plants are. Our supply bases, our tier ones, our tier twos, our tier threes. And for every one of those people that are out of work at one of these facilities that we have, there's six other people in the community that are affected. It's enormous for a engine transmission or stamping plant. All the downstream assembly plants would be affected within hours or days. And what most Americans don't realize is that although that would disrupt the manufacturing and the assembly of vehicles, many of those workers may not be eligible for the strike fund or for even unemployment. So at a personal level, our employees get hurt. Jim Farley at Mark Royce talking about what the impact of a strike or strikes at engine and transmission plants would do. The bottom line is this, Melissa, as you take a look at shares of the big three automakers, if there is a strike at a transmission plant, give it a day, maybe two, final assembly starts to shut down. And by the way, these plants supply transmissions and engines to the most profitable models. Big pickup trucks, big SUVs. We're not talking about small vehicles here. We're talking about the profit drivers for the big three. So the latest offer from the OEMs fell to 20% over the course of four and a half years. How long has that yep. been in the hands of the UAW? And have you heard anything about, uh, about potential response to that? Uh, we have heard that there's been no response from the UAW. Uh, and if there are talks, we're not getting any sense that there are legitimate talks going on this afternoon. Uh, both Mark Royce and Jim Farley expressed frustration that they have extended these offers to the UAW most recently yesterday and today. And the feedback from UAW President Sean Fain, well, they heard some yesterday on Facebook, haven't heard a whole lot today. And from their perspective, you know, they're not going to say that Sean Fain is planning on a strike and is not really negotiating in good faith. But you can read between the lines, Melissa. They, they don't believe that this is going to get resolved by midnight. That's my interpretation of the mm -hmm. comments that they made. They would gladly sit down in the next few hours, and if they can hammer out a deal, they would do it. But the feeling that I get from talking with executives is it's not going to happen. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau joining us you from bet. Detroit tonight. Okay, we go on strike. A couple of days, final, final assembly is shut down. 
no autos are rolling off those pl- those assembly lines. Yeah, so people, if you look at Carvana, and I'm not, listen, this is deep into the pool, but Carvana today tells you, I think, up 13%. AutoNation, too. Yeah, yeah AutoNation, too. CarMax, that this is yeah. going to have, the strike is going to happen. So if you want to play stock market here, these are the stocks to sort of play, understanding that that can turn on a dime. But those stocks are telling a story. But 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 then what? And, yeah. and I know you're not saying you know necessarily go, but you're right. I mean that the market's reaction. But 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 ultimately, um, there, there's a couple of key elements to this. I mean, one is, and Ford and Jim Farley pointed out that they actually had accepted the terms that were on the table. They would have lost 14 billion dollars over the last four years. And these are companies that are trying very hard to invest in EV. Now, I, I, this is the defense of the automakers, but I'm sure there's union folks out there saying. That's ridiculous. I mean, we're the ones that are you know, putting the blood, sweat and tears out there. Um, the, the, the point is that I think that this time may be different. And it also already feels different, not only because of the negotiation tactics. And there's usually a flurry of activity at this point of the day on the day before a strike. But all three automakers. Um, and that's something that I don't think we've seen ever. Right. And plus all the other strikes that yeah. are going on, right, right. in powers labor at this point. Uh, meantime, let's, uh, Disney shares popping late in today's session reports the entertainment giant is in talks to sell ABC to Nextstar Media Group. News of a potential deal coming amid Disney's struggles with its linear TV business. Disney denying these reports, saying a statement, well, we are open to considering a variety of strategic options for our linear businesses. At this time, the Walt Disney Company has made no decision with respect to the divestiture of ABC or any other property in any report to that effect is unfounded. Needs money, though, to pay for Hulu. Uh, As a shareholder, would you like to see it let go of its linear business? I'm I'm not sure. Well, the the deal with Charter almost makes you feel like they're they're grasping and holding on to the linear business as best they can. And and, uh, uh, as uh, the stud or the godfather Mm. guy, I'm going to dub Tom Rogers. (laughs) Rogers. Um, You know, again, it, it does seem like Disney's beholden to deals they've either done or have to do. Uh, and as a shareholder, that, that doesn't feel great. Um, I, I think ESPN kind of needs ABC, at least right now, even though the world is changing. Tom is sitting right now in that he's leather wood panel, drinking a cognac with a big smile Smoking on his it. face. <laughs> with that said, the stock's had a decent couple of days. The question is, does this rally last? Because every rally over the last 18 months has been sold. We'll see. All right. Coming up, problems at the palace. Details about the hacking group that infiltrated Caesars Entertainment. What we know now and what challenges still lie ahead for the casino giant. That trades next. And here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is chatting exclusively with the CEO of Cruise. Catch the full interview top of the hour in Mad Money. Meantime, more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Las Vegas Casino is still dealing with the fallout from a crippling cyber attack. Caesars Entertainment disclosing today that it paid hackers, known as Scattered Spider, a ransom worth millions mere days before a similar attack on MGM. Eamon Javers is here with the very latest. Eamon. Hey, Melissa. Well, this has been a series of challenging hacks, but we're learning more about the mysterious group that carried them out tonight, which cyber researchers have named Scattered Spider. Mandiant, a unit of Google, calls this one of the most prevalent and aggressive threat actors impacting organizations in the United States today. Its members are likely, they say, less experienced and younger than many established hacker gangs and nation-state espionage actors. Many of its members are native English speakers, which makes Mandiant believe they may be located in the UK or Europe. And Mandiant finds that they cause uh, out 
uh, outages in several ways which don't necessarily involve the deployment of standard ransomware encryptors. Of course, knowing all that doesn't do much good to MGM and Caesars, the two enormous casino companies who've been hit by these attacks. MGM disclosed its attack in an SEC filing Wednesday and Caesars did the same thing earlier today. Now, CNBC reported earlier that Caesars has paid out a ransom worth $15 million to the group behind the attacks. The group has demanded a similar payout from MGM. And late today, Melissa, the hackers released a new and lengthy statement saying they had been in MGM's Okta server environment for some time and criticizing MGM, saying that the hackers don't believe the casino company will agree to a deal. They say, quote, we recognize that MGM is mistreating the hotel's customers and really regret that it has taken them five years to get their act together. So some tough words from the crooks tonight, Melissa. Back over to you. <laughs> the crooks are wagging their finger at MGM. Um, what's what's yeah, interesting they seem about like they're spoiling for a fight here. Right. They're, they're for the people, apparently, um, is that the FBI has said that back in April 22, the same group leased ransomware that has led to at least 60 other compromises. I mean, you would think that if they can identify this group, that they can do something about it. This group seems like, though, it has all yeah, the leverage here. They, they have all the leverage in the short term. But in the long term, law enforcement has some advantages here. One is that if this is a native English-speaking group and it is in the UK or Europe, that means these people are probably located in a country that has an extradition treaty with the United States. They may get away with it in the short term, but these investigations go on for years and the FBI has demonstrated its ability to find people overseas, track them, prove that they are connected to some of these hacks and have them extradited back to the United States for arrest. Uh, so anything's possible here. If I was these hackers, I would not be breathing too easily tonight, Melissa. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers. And you won't want to miss uh, Kramer's exclusive interview with Octa CEO. That's tomorrow on Mad Money. We always talk about cybersecurity stocks and how there's always a need. Case in point. Palo Alto, the valuation's ridiculous. Meanwhile, it's trading around around an all-time high. Max Myers, the brilliant senior executive producer of Brian Sullivan Show. The last call at 7 p.m. Which you should tune into. He's texting (laughs) me about Spider. I know you know who Spider is from Goodfellas. By the way, Eamon Javers, badass. He's a badass, too. I'm just throwing it out there. So Ocean's Eleven. I feel like Andy Garcia is just seething somewhere in the hotel after this. But... It's unbelievably embarrassing, I guess, because they had to put it in their queue or something. Is that yeah, how it they came had a out? Filing. Yeah, you got to disclose this. Oh, we'll see what's next. Uh, coming up next, your final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Energy sector, French Total Energy Group. They've got a capital markets day coming up in two weeks. Companies usually don't have one of these uh, unless they have some good news. Chairwoman. Yes, uh, my final trade is not arm. Uh, anything <laughs> but arm. Did there. I'm not saying be short, uh, but well, I'm just. Can't. I can't. I, I don't. You can't yet. Uh, just no, no arm. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, yeah, that automation looks interesting. I'd use a 150 stop to the downside. Fun show tonight. You like the new Always. set? We're, getting, we're like. I love it. When I say around the horn, we're literally going around yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. The horn. Did you figure that out? Round. You know, what round the horn, mean, by the way? Well, it's Cape What's... Horn. It's when you go around the horn when ships used to go. That's why I asked you. I mean, why do you think I make this A up? reservoir of arcane knowledge. Plumberger, Mel. Go back to you. That's all big. Uh, thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 